Welcome to Unrehearsed. I'm Joanna Basil, and this is my guest. I'm Thunderstorm Artiste. I'm glad to be here. Thanks I'm for having so me. I'm so glad you said Artiste because I always say artists. You know, people do that. I mean, there's a fun little story. Um, the youngest sister in my family, her name is Artist Artiste, and it was to solve a family argument. It's literally spelled A-R-T-I-S, A-R-T-I-S. But what a beautiful name. Uh, right? It was like East Coast, we say artist. West Coast, we say artiste with the French Creole infliction. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of fun. Those of you that watched season 18 Correct. of The Voice, you already knew how to pronounce it. I want to get into that. First of all, Emily had a potential opportunity to do something similar. No way. I don't think it got picked up for a second season or third season. Anyway, and we talked about it as to how to strategically do it mm. that you would benefit greatly from it, but not be too contractually obligated. Mm. Do, do you ever want to win those things? You know, uh, to each their own. I mean, going into it, I didn't really want to win it. Win it. I mean, their contracts are pretty, pretty locked down for a, a long time. Um, not that I had any influence over whether I won or lost it. Um, just want to make sure that's clear. Um, and as I got close, when I was, you know, knew I was going to be in the finale, part of me was like, dude, I want to win this thing. You know, that's the competitiveness in me. But um, just from my understanding for the music industry, it's not the best in the artist's favor to win those shows, just because, you know, you're giving away a lot of your lifetime in the industry. Right. I wanted to get all this stuff out of the way because I know that that's how some people know you initially. Yeah. That's how you broke through yeah. and got more recognition in your career and in your singing. Yeah. No, I mean, my time on The Voice was the one of the most amazing things I've ever done. Uh, I want to make sure that I communicate that as well. Like, um, when I did The Voice, it wasn't something I was planning on doing. Like, you know, I didn't go stand in the line and audition and all the things. Uh, they reached out to me to potentially be on the show. And I got to go in and meet some of the producers and um, play a couple songs and share my story. And I had never done a music competition ever before. And it was it was an eye-opening. It was so validating. The coaches were amazing. I mean, John, like, I still speak to him today, which is really awesome. Um, but even the behind-the-scenes team, like, they pour into an artist in a way that I've never seen in any other capacity in the industry. Um, so That's it, the only show that I would watch. I mean, yeah. when I was younger, it was a lot of dance shows. Mm. Like, I grew up on Soul Train, <laughs> Chicago-based, right? Oh, yeah. Every Saturday. Um, dance Fever. Oh, look that up if you don't I need to, know. I, I know Soul Train. I don't know a whole lot about Dance Fever. Okay. And I keep thinking that if my grandfather were alive today, that he would love the dance contests mm. that are out there. Dancing with the Stars. Dance with, um, what is the other one? Like World of Dance with like the Lush Twins. And like 
I mean, I love dancing. Like I, I'm a little dance? bit of, I, I'm a little bit of a dancer. My younger brother is like an insane dancer. So I was saying out of all those contests, the voice is the only one that I would watch. Mm. It felt something genuine or inspirational. And the coaches seemed to be having a really good time. Yeah. And it seemed like at least forward facing or audience facing that you guys as contestants were learning a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And now I have to ask the question, how did you not, I tried to follow it. And (laughs) how did you not end up with John Legend? I was with John Legend. You were all the way through? No, no, no. So I actually. uh, Did you get stolen? I did. I actually lost my knockout. It's a funny story how I lost it. Well, not how I lost it, but I think, you know, a factor that definitely played into it. Um, But, um, and ended up switching over to Nick Jonas after that. I'm a huge fan of John Legend and it was an honor to be on his team. Well, you sound like you're influenced by John Legend. Hugely. Okay. Um, So then I was. Like, why wouldn't he pick or what? And I was trying to figure it out. I can't remember. It dawned on me today, I may have watched some of the episodes with you on it. No way. Well, I mean, it was But COVID I didn't time. watch it all the way through, clearly, because I don't remember what your journey was on the show. Yeah. But you were stolen from John Legend. Yeah. Did that well, upset you? No, no, no. So I was, I was saved. I think that's the best way of putting it right so they have stolen and they have saved um and so what happened was i did uh i did a knockout round so you do your blind audition first my song for the blind audition was blackbird it's probably one song that like most people know me blackbird the beatles um and that was one of the songs that i actually got to perform in the way that i put together which was really special to me um it was your arrangement my arrangement i was the same arrangement that i used to audition for the producers and they loved it, and they said no one ever did it that way on the show. Um, so they asked me to just do it just like that, and it was well. Most- you know, Philip is one of the biggest Beatles fans on the planet. I like, saw all the vinyls out. Completely there. <laughs> nerds out about it. So we're gonna have to look that up and and make sure we hear that. Yeah, at some point. It, no, it was really special. So all that to say. Um, so then after you blind audition, you get to choose your coach. Um, all four chairs turned, um, and I chose John Legend. Just that's what my gut told me, and he's an artist that I felt like that I can learn a lot from even outside of the show, just in the way that he embodies music and in, in, in his everyday life. And then um, after you're blind, you do what they call the battle round, which is you and a singer, you guys sing a song together and they choose which song, what singer they like more they make to the next round. So I won that round and my knockout was another one where um, I did one of John Legend's songs um, and it was really fun. It was really awesome. But unfortunately I didn't win that round. So uh, it was the Maybe chance. that's what I remember. Yeah. Because I thought that takes a lot of nerve to do that. Yeah. I mean, to perform somebody's song in front of them. Yes. So he was coaching you through singing his song. Yeah. Because you I were mean, still with Legend at the time. I was. And he did, uh, I mean, to his defense, he did say that, you know, no one who's, uh, no one who's been on his team who's sung one of his songs has made it to the next round. Um, he said that to me like during the rehearsal. Right. I was like, I was like, oh, well, that's good. No pressure. Right. Um, it sounds like football stats. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so I was like, well, um, but also in that time for that round, I got to meet James Taylor, and that was amazing. He oh, was wow. my knockout advisor, and that was a dream. Um, I mean, just that ability to be an artist from a small town and meeting someone that I grew up listening to my entire life. Um, 
But yeah, the fast forward, I I did lose that round and I lost that round. I think because of my 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 vocal choices and my abilities and the things that I chose to do. So props to Mandy Castile who won that round. Um, and then Nick Jonas, um, from the beginning, he saw something special and what I could offer. Um, and so he used his, his final steal and saved me from being off the show. And then, um, yeah, we did the whole And you were all, also an audience favorite. Yeah. You were a fan favorite. I was. I mean, yeah, I was reading all the little blogs and things going around. I was like, dude, man, people, people like me. <laughs> Have you captured that fan base? Have they followed you throughout your career? I mean, yes. I mean, they have been hugely um, instrumental, I think, of a lot of my music growth and um, my social following on Instagram and showing up to the concerts. And I mean, that's what I mean. Like, I mean, even the coaches on The Voice and the whole team behind us, like one person wins the show and wins the record deal, wins the money. One person wins that, but everyone else gets the exposure. But what you do with the exposure is so important. Um, and the exposure, think, the experience. Yeah. And the knowledge. And- and the the number of followers, because unfortunately, that's what a lot of people are looking at. Record labels, for example. Yeah. How many followers do you have? How many downloads do you have? How many plays yeah. do you have? And it's a numbers game a lot of the times. Hugely. You can be the most talented person in, in the world, but if you don't have the numbers or the know-how or the drive or the right team around you, like... I mean, I mean, I'm not someone to say that. So I mean, if you listen to the radio, it's not the most talented people. If you look at the charts, it's not the most talented people, but they know how to do their business or they have people around them that do know how to do their business. And, um, and learning that has been very fun for me. Um, I love the puzzles of life in the industry and percentages and stuff. So, yeah. But yeah, I had a great following on Instagram, still do. I'm working on growing that over on my TikTok. My monthly listeners on Spotify have grown exponentially a lot in the last year or two since kind of starting this pre, I mean, after COVID kind of thing. And it's been, it's been a really learning experience for me. I noticed recently that Spotify is trying to beef up what they offer to the audience, to the listeners that will benefit the artists. So I noticed they're doing a lot of marketing of the show's merchandise. They're giving artists more opportunities to monetize Spotify. Yeah. Because they've gotten such a bad rap for paying very, very small percentage on the actual plays and the music itself. I mean, yeah. What is it? Like, I think a million streams on Spotify, you get like 3,600 bucks. That's, I mean, that's all kind of a lot for like, um, and so it's just, I mean, used to be you I mean, selling physical CDs, I mean, you sell a million copies, I mean, for $20, I mean, you do the math, like, that's a lot of money. Well, and we use the term music industry. Yeah. But that meant something back before everything went digital because there were trucks involved. Yeah. (laughs) There was cargo there, you know, and and the people that moved it. Mm. And it was a process and working records to radio. Yeah. It was a process. There were people. There was exchange of information and money and yeah. and product. And so it was a literal industry. Yeah. Whereas now everything is driven by numbers and data. Yeah. And it's in the cloud. It's a, it's a data. <laughs> it's it's a new age. And I mean, I look at it. It's the same way I look at technology and stuff. Like it's a double edged sword. Like you can you know 
be the victim of it and be like, you know, this is the worst thing. I feel like I'm being ripped off and whatnot. Or you can look at, you know, you're able to reach such a larger audience. And when you're so doing- So how do you spin that and frame it in a positive way and and have it inspire you to keep yeah. at it? I mean, I mean, that's a great question. I would say I kind of look at it in the sense of, I know how it was for my mom and dad in their time in their industry of growing up in Motown era and working for Motown and all the different things. And I mean, thankfully people still buy physical CDs and vinyls. I mean, just like the vinyls that you have out in your living room. And it's like, you bring those things to an actual concert, people still buy. And, and there's times where people want to actually support the artist directly and they do. But as far as what Spotify or Amazon Music or Apple offer is it's global. Um, there's people, same thing with like TikTok and Instagram. There's people who probably in their lifetime would have never even heard of who I was. But we were talking, unfortunately, you and I basically did a pre-podcast <laughs> before the podcast. So I was like, you know what I realized? You have listeners in Oslo. Yeah, no way. Like, right. I'm talking to some friends in Sweden. They want me to do a song with them that they that they have, and they will um, potentially be on like Swedish radio, like big time. Well, radio there's also there. a city in Sweden that's yeah. like in your top five. I think it's like Stockholm, and then like there's a couple other spots. I have a lot of friends in Sweden as well, like in all over Europe. I've I've never been. I want to go. Like it's just it's insanity. Like what you can do through that. Like just the streams and. And then like, you know, the more music you kind of have of and the more, I mean, we were also talking about this earlier, but ownership of music, there's a lot of revenue in that. And then there's a lot of revenue in sync. I think my, um, the reason for like Oslo and everything is I had a Grey's Anatomy sync with one of my songs called Stronger. Yes. And, um, and then it really blew up over there. And like that song now is doing a lot of streams and, and whatnot. And then I have uh, another opportunity that like fingers crossed is going to happen. CBS just reached out to me like two weeks ago. They want to play stronger for the AFC um, AFC championship in the Super Bowl pregame. Um, I and love so that. It's, it's like huge little things like that, that like one song is able to do from just people hearing it and it being playlisted. And and that's more than maybe I would ever be able to do just myself with just selling physical CDs. Right, right. You're reaching a wider audience yeah. and you're getting the attention of some of the people that make those decisions. Yeah. So that's, that's what I would say. I would say, you know, anyone can chase the the quick buck. Um, it's easy to play a show or do something to make the quick money and initial fee in that. But as far as the longevity stuff, that's going to, you know, the passive income. What was it? It's this guy named Pharrell Williams. Um, he was talking about um, this conversation he had with Daft Punk, I believe. And he was saying that... Uh, Talk to this guy, F- Pharrell Williams. <laughs> and I'm laughing. Pharrell, yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard right. of him. You ever hear of Daft Punk? Uh, um, but he was he was talking about what they were telling him about. Um, they asked him if he liked house music. And he was just like, I'm not a really big fan of the genre. And they were like, no, 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 no not the genre. But like this song that we wrote, Bought Our House in Malibu. And this song. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think was, I saw that clip. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And he's like, you have to think of songs as investments and as like um, business opportunities. And I think when I started to think about that, and especially when coming alongside labels, when you're signing deals and whatnot, and the negotiation of ownership of masters or reversions of that in the long term, like the things that are going to be the passive income for your life or put your kids to college or pay for a house because- that's the only place that you don't have any expenses. Like you got expenses for touring. Like if you're a touring artist, like I am, you know, like you got your whole band out there and you got to, you got to put them up. You got to feed them. And you, do gotta, you play yeah. with a full band. Yeah. Sometimes I'll play with a full band. Sometimes okay. I do solo and, 
you know, you got you to gotta fly them out there. If they all live different places, you got you to gotta put them up. You got to feed them. Then you got to pay them on top of that. And then if you have a, ma- you have a manager, a booking agent, a business manager, you're giving percentages of all those gross incomes. And so you're doing the math. And like, but when it comes to streams, like if you get something to pop off, there's just, there's no expenses. So it's just, it says the possibilities are endless. You mentioned TikTok earlier. Yeah. I don't even have one. Yeah. I, at the time that it came out, I looked at it and thought, one more app, another social thing to keep me engrossed in it and engaged and take me away from real life. Mm. And I'm just not interested. And I know many artists have gained exposure from it Mm -hmm. or found an additional market share audience. Yeah. But then we have someone like Emily, Emily Justin, that you you know, you've seen her out. Yeah, talent. Yeah. Bad talent. Yeah. And she just, she's an old soul. She doesn't want to engage with people that way. But yeah, I know that if she were to work on her socials, namely TikTok, that she might get those numbers that she needs to get the attention of the people that matter, right? Yeah. And when I say the people that matter, (laughs) we're talking the the people that make decisions that help you make money. Yeah. And it's like, because just really thinking about also, I mean, even my advice to someone like Emily, and I mean, to put this in perspective too, I'm 27 years old. I turn 28 tomorrow, so I'm still learning a lot. Happy Uh, birthday. Thank you. But uh, I'm still learning a whole lot. Um, But like, I love to ask questions and I love to listen. Um, You learn a lot more when you're listening and watching than you do when you're speaking. I'm a firm believer of that. Um, but what I would say as well is like realizing what do you bring to the table? Also, what does a label bring to the table? And as the labels are looking at your following and whatnot, like the more that you're able to grow that audience, the more weight that you have at the table than versus going to a label when you have no following, you have no streams, you have no income. The label has all the power. You, you're you not bringing anything except for your talent and like, I mean, as hard as it to hear, there's, I even believe this, there's someone out there who's more talented than me. Like, you know what I mean? There's someone out there who's more determined than me. It's just in the sense of like, some people get an opportunity, some people don't. And it's just doing the most that you can with that opportunity, even bring up other people. That's important. I'm a firm believer. You put goodness out into the world and that goodness will come back. So I try to do that. But all that to say that um, TikTok, um, I was kind of in the place of Emily as well, like a couple of years ago, like... <clears throat> The TikTok is like, I just don't see it. Like, I you know, I don't want to get on there and do all the dances. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, I dance, but I'm like, I don't dance for the camera. Um, but then, like, I had to think about it as like, you know what? People don't want to see that. People just want to see authenticity. Like, they want to see who you are. Like, they want to see sometimes the behind the scenes of, like, what you do musically and talking about. Like, even like this podcast when you and I actually seen the person behind it. It kind of reflected to what I started doing with my live intimate concerts. It's like I open up for like a question time, almost like a Q&A, and I share a lot more about the story of where I grew up. Because I started to think about it from the, the lens of what do I want to see when I go to a concert? Well, here's the thing, too. I love that question and answer session. We have one of the greatest symphonies here. Yeah. The room sounds amazing. But because the musicianship is at such a high level, the maestro doesn't really have to 
micromanage what's going on. Mm. He gets really involved in bringing the music to life. And I went to the symphony and I heard pieces of music I've heard before brought to life in a way that I had never heard them mm. brought to before. And I, it was moving. And then they said, afterwards, you can stay and do a question and answer with Maestro. And I was, I went. Mm. I don't remember if I asked anything, but to hear him speak to that and talk about where he came from and how he approaches things and everything brought the music to life even more. Yeah. So that's a because great you a, idea. You get like a once in a lifetime opportunity to look into the person that you admire. And like, I'm still talking about it. Yeah. I tell people all the time. I mean, it's almost like free promotion. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because the music lives forever. Like you can go and you can stream my music. I mean, the songs that I think that are good and the songs that I got out that I think that aren't good. And you can stream it. And you can listen to it. And if you come to a show, you can hear me play that. But what you will not really hear is me explaining the story behind why I wrote that song. Right. And where I was and whether I was in a good place or a dark place and the influences. And sometimes when you hear that, or even for me as an artist, sometimes when I hear um, people's connections to my song and what it means to them, it's such even more of a special thing, like an interaction that like, and you create these moments where it's not just some dude on a stage. It's like, we're in a living room, we're a family. And that's, it's special, man. It's a special thing. I was thinking about you mentioning your songs. I haven't even gone down the thunderstorm rabbit hole, explore all of your music, because sometimes you might like something that isn't in your top place. Yeah. No, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, I would say my least streamed song, I think, has the most powerful message out of all of my songs. So I'll tell you the songs where Philip and I kind of got lost in it, where we forgot that we were like listening to our friend yeah. and we were just listening to the song and it was moving us. And I was like, I really like this. And he's like, me too. Oh, Little River. Yeah. Love that one. Love it. It was moving. It was different. Oh, Little River, carry me along. Yeah. Such a... You felt the meaning behind it. You felt... I guess the choice of instruments yeah. were a little bit of a departure from what I had been hearing. Mm -hmm. And then there is one of your more popular songs to something about fire. Take me to the fire. <laughs> Take me you're to right. the fire. You're right on it. I was like, okay, this, this is a, a song. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably my like biggest energy song. It's like just as raw as it can. And it's, it's about just like a transformation. Um, yeah, and it's it's derived. The whole idea is derived from um, uh, what is it like? The whole song like Mishai Rashai and the and Go, like uh, in the Bible, the story about them being in the fire and and Jesus being in there with them, but that being just just transformation in a way. And for me, like these last couple of years have been a transformation, um, because my outview. I mean, to get more into personal level than work stuff, my outview of life growing up was that. Anything that I could say or do, someone had done before. So what was the point of saying or doing anything? Or what do I really have to offer life? And I, I had that outlook through most of my young adult life, um, most of my teenage life. Um, and it was just like a lot, I carried a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. And and I just believed that, you know, I believed that about myself. And I thought that was my my value, what I had to offer the world. And then until I, I started to 
you know, because I lost my dad when I was 13 years old and my youngest sibling was four years old. Did your dad pass 2010? 2010. He was only 61 61. So I lost my dad. He was 69. Wow. And that it was four years ago. Yeah. Um, and some change. But there was a huge hole in my yeah. existence all of a sudden. And the greatest heartbreak that I had ever felt. Mm. So when I saw that you lost your dad. Yeah. You were only 13. Yeah, I was like 13, 14 years old. And um, like I got sober in 2010. Wow. And I, it fe- that feels like Congratulations on that. Oh, God. That's a big feat. Like that's, <laughs> that's no easy. It no isn't easy, easy but it, the more time that passes and the less tolerance for bullshit I have. <laughs> I love it. It seems like the best decision ever every day. So, but yeah, I have moments. I, when I want to check out, I don't even think it's like I wanted to eat comfort food the other day. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like I really, I've been through my dad's passing, um, a very traumatic experience in regards to another family member passing. I mean, you name it. I mean, the pandemic, the yeah, the tornado, the you just keep going and never wanted a drink or use through it. It's so weird. Yeah, no, I mean that's it's a powerful thing, and I think it's it's also the realization like that those things won't fix it, and I think that was one of the things that like I had to grow up and like realize. I mean, my song "Wildfire" that I reference is because when I was a kid and experiencing those things and having to grow up a lot quicker than most kids my age, um, I built a lot of these walls in my life, and as a kid, those walls um, are a good thing; they're a protection from like ever being hurt in that way ever again. But as an adult, those walls cease to become a protection, become more of a prison. There's a book out there that I need to, you to read. Oh, you have to, I need to start reading books. It's, do you read? Are I you a reader? don't. I'm Some honest, people aren't readers. I'm a reader. I want to be a reader. Like I've, I've learned that about myself. I'm like, you know what? Like I'm very much of a visual learner. Like I get in a room or I like, I love to listen to people. Like, let's talk, like tell me your life story. Like, let's just listen. Um, but I do believe there's a lot of knowledge to learn from books um, that I think that my generation or the generation that's coming that is just untapped. And I mean, if you don't know your history, you don't know where you've come from, you don't learn, then it's like, you don't know where you're going. Right. But also all these things that you touch on, someone else has either lived it or studied it, researched it. Yeah. And there it is. One one of the things I've learned is you could read the Bible. You could read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You could read, it's the Vedanta book that it's like ancient Indian philosophy that I read all the time. But if, if you don't apply what you're learning yeah. and make it your own, it's it never really rings true. 100%. So whatever you're learning, we talked about it, knowledge versus being smart, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You can possess the knowledge. If you're not using it, what's the point, yeah. you know? And if you use it and you find out it doesn't speak to you or it's not true, then it's not true for you. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a lot of, I guess— Knowledge, processing it, mm, yeah. you know, sitting with it, digesting it, and then applying it and seeing if it works for you. Yeah. And 
yeah, a lot of the stuff that I read, it's applicable to growth and, you know, a lot of dysfunction, <laughs> you know, like having been a past counselor, but also my own journey. Yeah. And so you're talking about the protectors. And sometimes when we show up in our relationships as adults, we're coming from that place of the protector. Yeah. So like you're already ready to strike maybe, like you're going to be the aggressor first, or you're going to protect yourself and not be vulnerable and have a shared experience with your partner. Yeah. And so you're, if you're showing up from your protectors and then they're showing up with their protectors. And I'll say to Philip all the time, like, I'm I'm not interested in having a relationship with your ego or your protectors. <laughs> I want to be in a relationship that. with you. Yeah. And it's a reminder, too, to myself that I have to do the same. But yeah, it always needs to be a mirror. And I think um, that's one thing I'm, I'm learning in my relationship. I've been married now for like three and a half years, almost four. Um, and the other thing is like, don't let your partner pay for your past traumas, like in the sense of what you've dealt with from your other relationships. Or, I mean, for me, like I wasn't in other relationships before my wife. She was my first like real relationship. That's dating. what you said that Faith was your first relationship. Yeah. But, um, because of that and my outlook on life, I think in our first couple of years, um, like I was always thinking about what I could offer. And what I could bring into the relationship. And that was my value. Um, I didn't really think about like what I needed or articulating that. Um, and as you, it's like what you're, I think my mom was explaining. She's like, you know, the first year is is great. It's hard. Third year is really hard. When you get to like the seventh and like six years, when you really start to like figure it out. And if you're not best friends by then, when you're at 10, 12 years, it almost feels like a business relationship. And it's like, you don't ever want to be in that place. So it's like, I'm very much about looking inward and why do things happen? Why do they tick the way that they tick? Um, and so I'm very big about that with myself and even in my relationship with my wife and like the things that we we experience, the great things, the bad things, and we try to be just really transparent with each other about it. Um, and it's, I think it's so important, especially today's age of, of that. But without like talking too much about all that, um, it's important because sometimes like there'll be moments where because of the way that someone else has reacted in your life or done something in your life, you assume that your partner is doing the same thing for the same reason. Um, and then you respond from that place. And then in return, you hurt your partner and there's a lack of trust. And so one of the things with in our relationship, we always say is just like, let's not assume because the conversation or the narrative in our oh head. Oh my God. Every, every day you can... Yeah. Assume. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in an argument because you framed something in a way that was totally off base. And your partner's like, I would never think to even do that to you. And you, right. in your mind, everything that you've seen, because maybe you've dealt with a pathological liar or whatever in your past relationship, you see all that leading. And these are sometimes will be red flags to your brain in your fight or flight. Um, and you don't really give your partner that benefit of the doubt or that chance to explain what right. they're going through. And I think that to me is such a powerful message. Like you've got to let someone have that chance to be able to explain what they have to. Now, like if you're dealing with someone who's a repeated offender, that's constantly breaking your trust, you got to recognize that for what that is and cut it off and say, you know what, you're, you're killing that part of me. And that's, that's just no brand. That's no good. That's toxic. But 
on the other hand, like if this person is just doing everything in their ability to love you and you just can't find that place to trust them, you have to do that inward look of like, where did that trauma start for you? Um, I don't know how I got on that point, but I guess we're just doing the unscripted podcast. So there we go. <laughs> right. But um, but yeah. Wait, one question I had, because I don't think I know this. How did you and Faith meet? Oh, man. It's, so we met in Hawaii, bringing it back for the voice, because because I got my four chairs turned in my blind audition. Um, the voice loved it. So they had me fly back home to Hawaii to shoot Backstory, where I grew up in my hometown. And I did a concert with my oldest brother, my oldest brother, Ron, while I was there. And I was a special guest. Um, story goes a little bit, long story short. She saw me on stage and she felt like the God said, that's going to be your husband. Oh my gosh. I don't know why. Somewhere in my mind, she was also an artist. She She sings. sings. She sings, but she wasn't, um, she wasn't like ever an artist in a professional sense. Okay. Um, I've been working on it. I'm like, babe, we got to do some more music together. Oh my but she's God. like, you can't afford me. No, Faith, she doesn't say that. No. But she's, she's awesome. Faith, get on that. Oh my God. Um, what a beautiful opportunity. She's so talented. Yeah. Um, most wonderful woman ever. Um, and she happens after, to be gorgeous. <laughs> that never hurts. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, four months after that day, we got married. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We got married top of COVID. Um, we had the COVID wedding, seven people. We were still hoping to do our big celebration in Australia someday where she's from. But um, which both, city in Australia? She's from the Gold Coast. Okay, this little area called Palm Beach, um, and now they her family lives in this area called Corumbin. Um, and I got to go spend some time in Australia with her and her family before um, we got engaged, before we got married. I spent like five to six weeks there. Did they embrace the guy that she like fell in love with almost instantly and married I mean, four months? I mean, the funny story is uh, when we met in Hawaii, her whole family was there. My whole family was there. And so it was a moment of all of us to meet. I think it was like we met December 13th, um, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day or whatever. I was like hanging out with her and her family in Hawaii. And her dad pulled me aside and was like, yo, what are your intentions with my daughter? And I was like, dude, I think she's like super interesting. And like, I would love to date her. And if the Lord allows it, I'd love to marry her someday. And he was just like, wow, well, you have my blessing. And that was like after like a week and a half of knowing me. And I was like, oh, wait, this is like. I didn't think it would be this way. Um, but all that to say, her parents have been amazing. I think in honest of like um, honesty um, through COVID with her catch, catching the second, the last flight out of Australia before the border closed. They were kind of oh, like, yeah. where is my daughter going? Could this be the end of the world? And she's halfway across the world with this man and we don't know <sighs> a whole lot about him. Um, and there was a lot of communication and growth, I think, on both of our parts that had to had to be done and was done. And thankfully I have a great relationship with her parents now and they're beautiful people and, um, and vice versa. I think we both pour into each other's lives and it's, it's really great, but it's that idea of communication and never assuming, um, because I'm an artist, I'm a musician. There's a lot of us out in the world. There's a lot of dudes who play guitar. And if you're a parent and you're sending your daughter to go live with some dude who plays guitar to say he's going to pay for all the bills. Like, you know, it could, <laughs> you, you could be a little, you know, you got to earn oh, a lot yeah, of trust I know, in that way. I know it all too well. <laughs> um, and I also know connecting immediately, seeing a future with this person, and then also allowing for the rough stuff to happen as you get to know each other and you kind of fumble through it, but you have this weird innate need or knowledge that I think this, I think walk through this difficult time, get to know each other on a deep level because this could be it. Yeah. 
you know? And I would say falling in love is easy. Staying in love is hard work. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. it. It's worth it. It's hard work. You have to, I mean, especially when someone in my position um, as an artist and like, I mean, if you're a musician, you play music and you sound good. There's a lot of people in the world that infatuate with you and what you can do. Um, and it can become a very tempting place. And so every day it's it's important to make sure you choose the person that you love and choose a person you're going to be loyal to. Um, because that's the thing that becomes your compass when you're out in the world of temptation and desires. I mean, there's a, there's a scripture in, uh, in James 1 where it says, no one can say when they're tempted, it's God tempting them, but you're tempted by your own desires. So your heart knows what it wants. Your body knows what it wants. But it's your mind and your spirit and your soul that makes that decision that says, this is where I'm committed. This is where I'm loyal. This is a choice that I make. And that's that's the thing that is my compass in my relationship and in my marriage and with this whole thing, because it's it's so important to put the work in. Like I was, I think I was saying this to you, I said it to a friend. I was like, God knew what he was doing when he put marriage together, because it's the most rewarding, beautiful thing you'll ever do and the most challenging thing you'll ever do. Um, and it teaches you a lot about yourself. You want to grow up? Get married. It'll grow you up. Right. Uh, you got your reflection right there. Your wife will tell you the truth, the truth about you, the good, bad, and the ugly. And it's the most rewarding and beautiful thing if you're not afraid of that. Because you can bring out the worst in each other and conversely, the best. Yeah. But you have to be ready for that ride because yeah. it is a ride. All good things come with high risk. And so I'm a firm believer of that. And so, and it's for me being afraid. Um, to give myself fully over to someone. That was, a, that was a huge trauma for me growing up. The idea, I think I was explaining that with you, like with rock climbing, the idea of trusting the essence of myself with someone in return that they wouldn't hurt me for it. Um, that was, I mean, a lot of my songs talk about that. The song Scared to Love, the latest release that I put out, talks about that. Um, my wife, she said something really, really beautiful to me. Um, early on in our relationship, because I was a firm believer as a as a man that you carry your own baggage. You know what I mean? You don't you don't burden anyone else with your experiences and who you are. And um, and she told me she was like, you know, you hurt me more keeping those things away from me and trying to protect me than if you let me in and showed it to me. And that was a foreign thought for me because I was just like, no one ever wants to deal with my baggage. And she was like, no, I want it, and I want to be in it, and I want to see it. Like, don't be afraid to show that to me. Um, and that was just the most beautiful thing. And I, I hadn't heard anything like that in my whole life. And so that kind of stuff really starts to shape your perspective in the sense of kind of like, okay, I need to open myself up. Now, how do I do that? Like, where are the tools? How do I, you know, become okay with those emotions? And so it's a beautiful thing. That's why I said marriage just teaches you so much about yourself. Now, and I'm not surprised to hear that she would say something like that because I get that from her. Yeah. Just that sense of... That quiet confidence and holding, being able to hold space for you, yeah, and work through it, and yeah, hold your hand through it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think marriage is um, no, it's it's not like fifty fifty. It's a hundred a hundred. You both got to give. Oh yeah, everything, everything that you are. And um, my wife, she's amazing, and um, and you know, I tend to be to be the talker mostly in our relationship. And I'm learning that the importance to listen to understand rather than listening to respond are the, the thing of even when she brings situations to me, you know, being that man that, you know, ask, hey, do you want my response on this? Do you want me to help fix it? Or do you want me to just listen? Um, and I would 
that was the best advice I ever got from an older gentleman. And um, it's really helped my marriage a lot. You know who says that a lot? Emily. No way. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Like, do you just want me to listen or do you, do you want me to? Yeah. And I think that's a great thing to offer to someone. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to vent. Sometimes you just yeah. want to. Yeah. And other times you do want solution. I like to read things to Philip. That's mm. my way of pausing. And instead of firing something off or just mm. coming to a conclusion on my own that isn't real or whatever, um, just running it by someone. Yeah. And if someone's there that wants the best for you, you know, you you have, I have a board of directors, I call <laughs> it, right? Because we could get advice from a million different people all day yeah. long. And next thing you know, your head is swirling and you don't know what to do about a yeah. decision. You identify the people that you know that they have your back. They love you. They love you unconditionally. And maybe they're smarter than you are in a given area. Mm. And then you just, you know, you know your go-to person for this. You know your go-to person for this. Yeah. But it comprises a board of directors. So when you have big decisions to make in your life, you you have those people yeah. in your corner. And it's so important because we don't, I know I don't think I could walk this road alone. There's times when I've tried to do it, but life throws curveballs, man. And you never know. And and yeah, and at the same time, not to make it all negative when there's moments <laughs> to be celebrated and good decisions yeah. to make too. In moments of joy, who am I sharing this with and who am I going to help or who's going to help me make the best decision around this great thing? So yeah. it's just negative things, but. No, I mean, I would say this too, like it's, it's important. Like I know that we're talking about some of the negative things, but in the negative times, or I wouldn't even call them negative, but like the self-awareness and the hardship and the friends that are around you, like everybody's going to be around you when you celebrate. Like, you know what I mean? Like when I was on The Voice, like, I can't tell you how many, how many people who I thought lost my number, like <laughs> call me up. Hey, you remember me? I used to come by your house. Like we used to hang out. Like they're with me through that whole season. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and it's great. It feels nice. But it's like, you know, the best way I put it is like, you know, the flies are attracted to, you know, the the SH, you know what I mean? Why are you the SH? And when you're not that, the flies are going to buzz off to the next place. But the people that are with you in the time of hardship, those are your real friends. Those are the people that are going to be around you, whether you have it or you don't. And, 100%. Um, and so that's, that console is that community you have that's that special. And it's rare. It's rare to find people who really know you and love you for who you are and love your broken bits as well. Oh, yeah. And are okay with it. You know what I mean? Not trying to, because I think there's a lot of people out there. I mean, even people in relationships are, they're getting advice I mean, I don't want to offend nobody, but like sometimes you, you know, you're a married woman and you got a, you got a friend who's not a married woman who's living a single life and thinks all men are, you know, S-H-I-T, like, you know what I mean? And I love so then, that you're spelling that out because yeah. I never do. I told you to start. <laughs> but it's like, uh, but like, you know what I mean? And then like that woman was like, you know, hey, you don't need that man in your life. You don't need this, all that. And then you break up the relationship and you realize, you know, like, man, like I had a really great thing. And I got rid of it because I got this advice from this person that wanted me to also be in that bitterness with them. And that's a that's where it's like being able to have that spirit of discernment in you, to be able to discern what is like right and wrong in advice that you're given. 
Yeah. I think that's the most important. The board of directors. Otherwise, you have these people that you don't know their motives all the time. And sometimes they do like a partner in their own misery. 100%. So, misery loves company. Right. <laughs> Ain't saying for nothing. <laughs> I had someone like diagnosing my partner um, as the same personality disorder as her partner, her ex-partner. <laughs> and I, and then all of a sudden, because I had the DSM-5, which is like the manual that tells you all you need to know when you're working in, uh, you know, a, a psychology field. So the DSM-5 is that manual, the psychological manual, and you're yeah. reading it. And now, not only are you diagnosing your partner, but you're diagnosing yourself and you're diagnosing your dog. <laughs> you know, it's like- You're diagnosing your plant. Oh my God. <laughs> So I actually got rid of mine. I don't have it here anymore. Wow. It, it's an expensive book when you're in school, but like, yeah, I I gave that away. Maybe I sold it. That's Maybe. good you said that because I was literally, as you said, it, I was like, ooh, that would be a great investment. No, you and sit on I the couch like, <laughs> and next thing you know, like you're crazy, your neighbor's crazy, you know? Yeah. It's, no, it's not, listen, when... So I I have a little bit of a health scare and everyone's like, don't go down the WebMD hole. And I'm like, because <laughs> people do that, right? Same yeah. same concept. But what, what I do, I get enough information. So I'm armed with the knowledge to ask intelligent questions, mm. meaningful questions. And I try to approach business that way sometimes. Definitely health, right? Yeah. I think it's important for us to advocate for ourselves and whatever it is, yeah. right? But yes, don't go running out and buying a DSM-5. No, I'll I mean, show you the books out there that I think you should read, given what you've told me so far. But I was saying that to start, I said, oh, I know you probably don't cuss. I cuss like— I do. You do? But I try not to. Okay. I try not to just because, like— You've never cussed around me. Maybe here and there occasionally. Well, I respect you. But you know what I mean? Like, thank you. Like that's 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 why I respect you too. But you, it's going to come flying out of my mouth, and it doesn't offend me. Like, but what did you say? You said earlier something. You told me what your dad said. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, my my dad, man, he cussed like a sailor, and like he was in the navy. He his was parents, a navy man. He was his parent, his fa- his adopted father was in the air force. My dad grew up in the streets. Like he grew up a very hardship life, and he wanted to give us something that was different than what he experienced. But at the same time, he was like, I'm going to say everything under the sun that you could ever possibly hear in the world. And I'm going to say it to you. I'll say it to you daily. And it's a very hard knocks way of, you know, growing up, like hardship, but like, um, but he's like, so that it doesn't phase you when you're out in the world. Um, and his view in the world, even with us cussing, like, like I said, like sometimes I think I cuss the most more at myself than anyone else. Um, but he would just be like, I want you to grow your vocabulary in a way that you can express without having to go there unless yes, you need to. I like that. And so that's usually, and not just that, like, you know, like, and it's the same thing with my music. Like, I try not to perform or sing anything that I wouldn't feel comfortable singing in front of my grandmother or newborn child. And I try to do it in the same thing with my speech. But, like, I hold myself to a standard. I don't hold people to that standard. Oh, it's I'm, not like a disrespectful thing. Or, I'm deathly afraid of Philip's parents <laughs> listening to the podcast. No, but it's good. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a little- We kept it interesting. I said, oh my God, I do not want your mother to hear this. And he said, I think I cussed more than you did. I was swearing more than you. And I I do not think so. But I was just trying to think back. Did I say anything that was, you know? And I I mean, I want to stress that as well. Like, um, 
I think cussing in a way is like a it's a it's a way to communicate. And it's apparently people with high intelligence levels cuss a lot. Yeah, you listen to Gary Vee, one of my favorite, favorite dudes. Like, if there's a guy named Gary Vee, I love him, but he cusses over like three, five words. I still love him. Like, you know what I mean? It's like some of the most intelligent guys in the world and the knowledge that they share. It's just, it helps bridge the gap from like A and B, like, or A and Z, like, so quickly. I wasn't allowed to cuss or swear. I don't know what I say cuss these days. That's a southern thing. It's like swear. Yeah, I know. I've, like my cuss words and people are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, they're like swear words. I'm like, all swear right. words. And they're like, what? Well, I'm like, what is a swear word and what's not? But it's like, yeah, I would say like, you know, to each their own. And I try not to govern others from no, the No, but I do. Here's the thing. And maybe this shows my age. I don't like when I'm in the grocery aisle buying oatmeal and I got to hear someone's F-bombs. Yeah. Behind me, and I'm just like, or you're a kid cussing at their parents. You're in the grocery store. Calm down. But I do have a child and elderly filter. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because there are there are things that I'm trying to phrase this. I'm like, there are things from my childhood. There's things that I was raised not to do. Mm. Yeah, respect your elders. You know, mind the fact that there are children there. Yeah. You know, but <laughs> you're always on the phone. Everybody works remotely and stuff. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, am I, is your kid there? Because <laughs> I'm swearing <laughs> on the phone and the, or speakerphone, right? In the car. So yeah, maybe I should just learn how to keep the filter on. No, but. I mean, and I, I want to stress this again, like it's for me there as a personal discipline. And it's the same thing with like, alcohol or drug use or or addiction for me. Like I have a highly addictive personality. And if I were to do these things, it'd be easy escapes for me. It'd be so easy for me to cuss every five, four words just to communicate and get across. And you might just slip into it and... Yeah. And it's the same thing with like, if I was to overly drink and whatnot, and I wanted to escape from whatever dark thoughts are in my head or the things that make me the person that I am. And if I wanted to do those things, it'd be so easy for me to do that. But it's a personal discipline for me to, to the way that I've learned to operate. So that's why I'm like, I think each person has their own rules, those set of rules that kind of are your compass that don't allow you to deter. And that for me is like one of them. I'm like, I know like, and I know when I'm around people, sometimes like, I mean, one of my brothers, we're, we're opposites and he, he's F-bombs like, like every five seconds. And it's like, and sometimes I'll start doing that. And I'm like, wait, okay, that's not you, Thunder. And I'm like, who are you? What do you want to represent? Now, is this, is this, I always view everything in my life. Like, is this edifying and and growth or is it destructive? And if it's destructive to my life, my personal life, to my family and to the people around me, then I'm like, I need to cut that out. And it well, was, philosophically, what you take in Shapes your thinking, and your yeah. thinking shapes your behavior. Yeah. So, do if I want you my have... kids saying f bombs to me? Like, no, no. I got a seventeen month boy. I don't want like the first word that he learns to say is like the f bomb to me, and like that's just a personal thing for me. He's like, so precious. He's the best thing I've ever like done. I mean, well, besides marriage, but he's like he's the best thing I've been dreaming about being a dad since I was nine years old. Really, me, I was like being a parent, being a father to me is just one of the most important things you can do in life, and it's a different view for I think people in my generation. I think, I think it's really 
really like hard in a way. Like, cause I'm just like, and I, I grew up through hardships. Like I had great parents, but we had hardships. We had things that we were going in and dealing with and um, hardships and financially like living wise and, and things that I experienced. But I also like, I knew the importance of, of the next generation and, and just life in general, just the beauty of it. And the idea of raising a kid and, and teaching them all the things and loving them in the ways that maybe I wasn't loved. You know what I mean? Like being able to be that for him is yeah. one of the most special things. And then as the next generation, like I'm able to take my torch and pass it on to someone else and say, okay, go out, be your own person, do your thing. Like, and whatever, how many kids I have, whether it's one or 11, like my parents, I don't know. But it's like- No, just, you said that today that you had 11 or 10 brothers and sisters, yeah. right? There are 11 kids. And I'm number seven. Wait, what, what? So I know that you come from a musical family. Yeah. And don't think I'm not going to ask about your dad's experiences <laughs> because how can I not? Oh, my goodness. So one of the things that Philip and I talked about was your dad played on Thriller. Yeah. Well, Keys, he, right? was a part, he was a part of the production in Thriller. I don't know in what capacity. I, I've seen that going around in some of the bios and things that are kind of going off. And I was like, okay, I want to make sure it's like clear. Like, I know that he worked on it. Um, not a lot of people know this as well as that Michael Jackson is actually my mother's cousin. Um, and so my mom grew up with the Jacksons. Um, my dad worked in, mostly in this group called Shalimar back in the day. Um, he was a session in working Wait, studio. Wait, I know Shalimar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Oh my God, I have to, now I have to go like <laughs> so back and research that. Oh worked, my goodness. He worked in Shalimar for, for a while. He toured with them. He was also um, in Motown. He worked underneath this guy named Norman Whitfield for years. Um, and my dad also had a studio gallery and he was also an artist in Beverly Hills for years and painted. So was your dad in LA when he was with Shalimar? I wonder if my friend Ernie knows your dad. He probably does know, know of my dad or whatever. And, and like, I'm like, I gotta take my phone off like airplane and text him. It's like crazy stuff. So they, their experiences, man. And then, and then they left it. My dad got diagnosed with, diagnosed with his heart condition. I think when he was like 30 something, um, and so then they left California and we're just like, we're taking a break. Like I was wondering how he went from Texas. Oh, he was a, so started up Texas. Um, his biological father, I mean, a little history, at least from what my limited knowledge of what I remember, his biological father left the moment that his mother was pregnant. Um, my dad's biological father is actually a famous blues um, pianist named Leon Blue. He still plays music in Texas. He's played with amazing people and really great, talented artists. So this is your uh, biological grandfather. My biological grandfather. So it's um, running through your veins. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's, it's, it's a nice burden or torch to carry, and like and to recognize that I'm a part of that is like it's special. But at the same time, I'm like, all right, man, like. What am I going to do that one day my kid can look back on and be like, hey, this is what my dad did. But at the same time, be your own person. Um, but yeah, so then my dad was grew up in a house where he wasn't really allowed to play music because it was a reflection or a reminder of his biological father to his mother. And it wasn't until he, his adoptive father came to the picture, Norman Ortiz, um, who was in Air Force, no talent. I find this so fascinating. Yeah, bought my dad his first instrument. Like Todd, and so then, what did your dad first play? I think his first instrument was saxophone, and then my dad um, switched over to piano, and that just came naturally to him in um, jazz. Loved this guy named Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, like a you like, like this, he yeah this guy Miles Davis. <laughs> oh yeah, 
I, mean, I hope, I hope that Charlie my listeners. Parker, the bird, oh you know, my God. John yes, Coltrane, yes, like, yes, you know, yes. Bud Powell. Like, it's like all these, like, Dizzy Gillespie. Like, these are the artists that I grew up on. And then, like, old jazz standards and stuff. Like, you know, like, Andy Williams, uh, like, Nat King Coles. Like, like, these are the music that I grew up, like, even being a young person. Like, I grew up with the vinyls and cassettes, like, of these artists. And I would listen to them. And I'd be like, man, this is the stuff. I always joke at my concerts. I was like, there's like a song. It's like, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree if you still want me. Like, and I'm like, I used to be like, that's the jam. And I go to other kids in my, like my age range. And I'm like, have you ever heard the song? They're like, dude, no, like, what are you talking about? But, uh, but yeah, so that's how my dad got his start in music. And then his father being in the Air Force, they traveled around. So my dad lived all around the world. And same thing with my mom, her her dad was in the army, was in, I believe, in the Vietnam and Korean War. Um, and was a frogman and a paramedic in in all that. And so they moved all around. They lived in Germany and then they both kind of settled. My dad was in Baltimore, DC for a bit, but they both settled in California and that's where they met. So when you say they met in Motown, it wasn't Detroit. No, no, no. It was once they moved from Detroit to LA, of to my understanding. But they were in Detroit. Yeah, that's in Detroit. No, no, no. I mean, when Motown, Motown moved, moved relocated yeah. to the yeah. West Coast. Okay. Yeah. And so that's what I believed my, um, if you called my mom, she'd give you the whole like three hour spill, which is great. It's like awesome. It's really. So what was her connection to music? Um, My mom grew up singing opera and jazz since she was 10. Does she um, still sing? She still sings. I, I owe my voice to her. Oh. I owe my even wanting to sing to her. Like, I thought I was going to be a drummer, um, a rapper, um, but I loved old jazz standards, like Autumn Leaves, like, you know what I mean? Like, and I used to wake up early in the morning and I would sit at the piano. We used to have two grand pianos in our house that we had. And um, and I would just run through songs, like old jazz standards that I heard her and my dad sing together. Oh. And then she would come down in the morning and be like, you should try this. You should do this. And I think you um, this would help your voice. Me being the teenager that I was, I was like, no, mom, I'm just doing this for fun. Right. Um, I'm going to be a rapper or a drummer. Don't worry about it. And she would leave and I would practice everything she would say. And that's, that was my whole and every. It was so like you every were secretly day. doing what she yeah. ultimately wanted you to do. Yeah. I mean, because being number seven in a family of 11 kids of talented artists, I was also very, if you grow up in that kind of environment, my family, I want to say this, very, very inclusive, like very pouring into each other. Um, but you look at someone and what they can do or like the artists I was listening to, like Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, all these other artists. And I'm like, I would never be that good. And because of that comparisons, I was like, what's the point of even trying? Because when would I ever be that good? Um, and I thought that was what I needed to be. And um, thankfully for my parents and some good friends who were able to teach us, teach me. And since the importance of like, there's only one you and there's only one person can do what you can do and right. learning that. I feel like I'm still trying to figure that out. I swear yeah. to you. It's it's a thing right now. Yeah. I've done so many different things. There's things that I'm good at. And there's things that I love. And there's things that go undervalued. Mm. And I know what makes me tick. Yeah. And I'm having one of those moments. I don't know if it's a <laughs> midlife crisis. But am I doing what I was put on this earth to do? Mm. And I don't know. I mean... I read this quote by, I want to say it's Buckminster Fuller. Like, we don't have any say in it. Basically, it's like, you don't get to say that you're not as good as Stevie Wonder 
because you've been given a gift, mm. you you don't get to do, what did we talk about earlier? Limitations. Yeah. And it's like how you view yourself and how you, how you like, value yourself. Yeah. You're not allowed to give yourself limitations because yeah. that, you know. I am a firm believer, but at the same time, like res- respecting because it's like, not believing that you're you're the stuff. You know right, I mean? right, right, right. <laughs> like, I mean, listen. Some people out there think they're larger than life, but I'm like, dude, like you, you're the size of a mustard seed. Right. Like, like you gotta like you gotta bring it down to earth, like, and just be honest with yourself. Well, like, they're just posturing, or it's all. Yeah. I was like, BS, even but, a rooster. A rooster looks really big when he puffs up the feathers, but you. You have this me is like saying, a farmer thing, but if you wet him, <laughs> that thing will be so small. Like, and that's just how some of us are. You have me saying BS now instead of bullshit. Some people are just all bullshit and you know it, but yet they're posturing in this way. And it makes me sad actually, because like, just be yourself. Yeah. You're great as you are. You don't need to puff yourself up. Like yeah, we got a fraction of time. Would you on say this a earth. chicken? Yeah. Like a rooster. A rooster. Uh, and then I, you get I that rooster like wet. 20, 27. 30 chickens that I had like a raise when I was like a little kid. Um, in Hawaii. In Hawaii. Wait, and, okay. North Shore, did you surf? I wanted to. I messed up my rotator cuff. I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to be a football player. And um, I messed up my rotator cuff playing some um, football with some friends. And so paddling was always really hard for me. At least that's my excuse that I would always say. But I grew up with a lot of really great surfers. So I, I learned how to John surf. John and, oh, you did? Yeah. So I grew up with John John like, and a bunch of other good friends there. Like, I, like knowing Kelly Slater, that's how I know Jack Johnson is from my time being born and raised there in Hawaii and just them pouring into. So no, I'm not, not really a surfer. I can get out there and do a little bit, but like not in the way that I would consider myself a surfer. It's one of those sports that you have to commit to and then do it all the time yeah. to stay good at it. Yep. Like I'm good at it, but I can't stay good at it because I don't do it enough. It's like golf. I haven't done I it in a couple golf. of years. Do you really? I don't know if you play any, but it's. No, I don't think I have like, the patience for it. Golf is like chess to me. Like it teaches you a lot about yourself. Oh yeah, I don't want that. You can, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> you can play with other people, but you're really playing yourself. Oh yeah. And that's the, I mean, the the greatest thing about, I mean, that's another story. I mean, like I started playing chess when I was eight years old. And oh wow. It was my dad's lesson to us. He, I'm a big video game guy. Um, but he took all our video games and locked it in the closet for a year. And so you want to learn something about yourself and about life, play this game called chess. Good on him for and doing we, that, huh? We got like, yeah, we got like four or five different chess boards that we had around the house. We would all play, all 11 of us and my parents. And then we would uh, we would open it up for just random people. Sometimes we would we had a little shop, a little front shop in Holly Eva, and we would put our chess tables outside. We even built these tables that had like the checkered chess things in there. And people would come and sit down and play with us. I'm like a little eight-year-old, 10-year-old kid. And I'll be like, yo, tell me about your life. We're what was that series? Do you remember that series? It was about um, the Queen's young Gambit. Yes. Did yeah. you watch yes, that? Yes, I did. Such that a great was show. So good. Such a great show. But it's like, but yeah, I mean, like sitting down like as a young person with the ability to talk to someone who's a couple of generations older than you. I love that. It's teaches you so much. Um, I think the problem with this generation right now is that we don't learn enough from my older generation. Well, it's and not we just think- it's not just your generation. I th- I see it across mm. the board. Especially in elder care, mm, yeah. when people are dismissive of the elderly or they think that they're disposal, yeah, sad. It makes me angry because, first of all, they know way more. Like when I'm hearing a 20 year old talk 
I'm like, oh, honey, you have no idea. I know that the 80-year-olds are hearing me talk and they're like, oh, she's so full of shit, you know? But, but I do take the time to get to know my elderly wow. friends, family, whatever. I found great comfort in spending time with my grandparents. And I was cooking and gardening and learning how to mow the lawn. And they would take us to church and it was an Italian mass. So here I'm, and they would speak Italian in the house. I'm exposed to a different language. And we used to dance in the living room. My grandfather was a, you know, an award-winning dancer. No way. In the old neighborhood, those kind of things. I don't know if he had any classical training, but Anyway, all those things and the music that was introduced to me. Yeah. And all those things, I learned wonderful, rich things from these people. And they're our key to our past and in turn our future. And the way that that we treat our elderly is unbelievable. And you know what? It's really sad. We're all going to be old like that someday. We're all going to be wearing diapers. We're all going to be wearing hearing aids. And who's going to be in the room with you? Know what I mean? That's the the thing. It's like, I mean, like a lot of people don't really think about that, man. It's like the community and the relationships you have, like what you're pouring into. It's like, you can, it can be all about me, myself, and I. That's great. 20s, 30s, like 40s, like when you start to get older, when you start to really need help, like, and you don't have people around you who love you, like what you're talking about, like your circle of people, like you don't have that. You're alone out in the world. And I tell you, like fame leaves as quick as it comes. Right. And so, and so does your money. And when you're- Well, and fame too now has been democratized. It's not, it's easy for, you know, it's like you don't have to be talented to be famous. You fortunately are very talented, but thank you. I'm not famous though. <laughs> but you are to a degree. To a degree. Yes. No, but you've you've worked for it. Yeah. It's been a lot of hard work and it's a lot of work that people don't see. And it's the years it's the years before. I mean, it's um even like your um yeah, like what you were talking about. It's just like the work that people don't see. Or I was I was just talking with a gentleman before coming here and he was just talking about he's a he's a he was in an, an amazing band. Back in the day, but now he's also a professional speaker. And like he sometimes will do the routes like on an RV with his family. And he's just like, you know, most people don't know. Like you get up there for 40 minutes and give your speech and you do your talk. And it's great. Everyone knows you as a speaker. But sometimes when you're driving yourself, you're more a professional driver because you're spending eight hours on the road a day. You're spending more time in transit than you are in actual like doing your work. And right. it's the same thing, same thing with like music. I mean, most actual headline concerts are like 90 minutes the most. But what about the travel time and the work that it takes you to get there and like the hotel time that all the different things that people don't see that like 4 a.m. red eye flights or whatever, like, you know, all this. They think it's it's all glamorous and it's all sexy and it's all, you know, fame and fortune. But there's a price that people pay. Yeah. Whether it's with their families, being away from their families. Yeah, huge. I'm sure that's huge for you guys. And the money doesn't come until the money comes. So yeah. sometimes it's a labor of love. And yeah. yeah, it's a labor of something. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> it's right. like what you said, too. And it's going back to that. Like, if you don't know your business and then things do start popping off and you are having to tour because your label and everything. And if you don't know your business, you don't know your numbers. 
you're not retaining any of that. So you're no, sacrificing I'm, you're sacrificing like your family time, you're sacrificing your actual community with friendships for like this glimpse of of stardom and what you're getting on stage. Um but if you're not doing your other stuff, you're not gonna be set up, man. It's right. Like, it's well, again, else. that's the ego thing. Like you yeah. can feed my ego, but at the end of the day, where's your retirement? Yeah. Don't my best thing was like, don't let it become your identity. Um, and even with the voice stuff, one one of the biggest reasons I wanted to move here to Nashville is like I throw a shoe and somebody was on the voice or American Idol. It's a humbling thing as well. It's like it can't be my calling card. No. And, I and it that. isn't with me. It's funny because I don't look at you that way. But no, and I, I, I know that because like, we met under different circumstances where it wasn't even like the voice stuff. It was right. just like, I think the first time I met you was at your birthday party at like a bowling oh alley. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> and that was like, that was dope. Um, but I'm like, I can hang. We can hang. And I like, was like, this lady's rad. <laughs> no, and you, were, and you were really embracing of Emily being yeah. a young woman with a voice, with... Yeah. You know, well, something to say people, through her music. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. But. It's a podcast. We do it all, all the time. <laughs> no, I love seeing people and seeing the greatness in them and the potential in them. And um, and I think that comes out, like, I mean, a lot of people don't know this. It's like I was studying to be a pastor or a counselor or, or I wanted to be a therapist growing up. And I'm very big at looking at people and seeing what they can accomplish and then just just praying that, that like, maybe I could be in a part of helping that kind of come to fruition yeah. without anything in return. Um, and Emily is someone I think I saw her perform that night for the first time. And I was just like, wow. Like there's And that was just some weird impromptu thing that weird like, impromptu thing. Um she got picked to sing and then she got to pick the next person. Yeah. It and was like a You're the, lucky she didn't know all about you then because she would have definitely picked you. <laughs> I that's one of those things though. It's like I even I even like with the limited things that I've done in my career, I go into sometimes in situations even like that and say, how long can I have a conversation or be around in here without, here's my accolades. Because when you start to do that, I mean, I even love that about you. It's like, there's so much I've learned about you in these last, like, I've, I don't know how long I've been on this podcast or prior to it now, like, that I didn't know, like, even though, the, like, the few times that we've hung out. And it's like the accolades of the things that you've done, the things you've accomplished, those things aren't you in a way. They're things you've done and they're a part of who you are, but those aren't, like, the essence of who like Joanna is, you know what I mean? And like, I'm like, that is special because it's a hard thing because in today's society, it's like, it's work, work, work. Like your your work is an example of who you are and you can't have that separation. And Nashville, I've said this before, feels very transactional. Yeah. And yeah. it's sometimes hard for someone like me. Do you know how many people were like, why are you helping Emily? As if there's some wow. kind of ulterior motive it's like, because I'm doing for her what people didn't do for me or what women specifically didn't do for me. And being of service to someone and helping them get their start with yeah. this knowledge that I have that I thought was useless, you know, sometimes. <laughs> or the connections that I have. And they're not like, oh, I got business contacts. Those are relationships I've nurtured over years in a more personal sense. It so happens that we've been in, you know, the industry together or whatever, but yeah, those are people that I respect and I would like to think respect me. And if I said to them, oh my God, there is this woman you have to hear, they're going to believe me because I don't do that every day. Yeah. So yeah, if I ever have an opportunity to connect people, yeah. that's, it's funny you say what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to either be on Channel 7 Eyewitness News <laughs> 
broadcasting, right? I could see it. Yeah. I I I didn't I'm good on camera. And I knew that from being in LA and having to yeah. do some on camera stuff. And I, I tested well on camera. But I, I don't know. After a while, I just wanted to either be on a microphone or behind the scenes. Mm. And I still love being on set. Love everything about it. But I don't know. It's just life took to- so many twists and turns. And, <laughs> you know, it's and then you end up here. And, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting because, like I told you, I was a counselor one time. And you're like, really? And now you're telling me that was something that you wanted to do. Yeah. And who's to say you can't go back to school and get your counseling certificate and be somebody who counsels musicians. Musicians I know all need therapy and counseling. I mean, mean, it's a double-edged sword. It's like the reason why we're able to write the things that we write is because of the trauma and the trauma and the experiences that we have been through. Um, But also artists have the rare ability to be able to articulate those feelings in a way that most people don't know how to. I just, I finished, I reread Jeff Tweedy's book. He's Wilco. I don't know if I need familiar. to get like a book list from you. Yeah, just like, hey, send you, me a book I'm, for the month. I'm, I'm telling going, you. I'm going on a trip. Any songwriter or musician should be reading this book, especially if like people are thinking of getting sober or just seeing the progression of somebody like him who grew up you know, outside of St. Louis in Southern Illinois, some small town, was trying to get as much music as he could. Mm. And his mom buying his first guitar. And then it takes you all the way through, through the death of a parent, through all these things, life and his songwriting process and how it changed throughout. And then what sobriety did for him and the different changes in his bands over the years. But like the one thing that, always rings true throughout is just his like raw powerful deep love of music yeah and the reason why I thought of him because you said something about you don't write because of your pain you write in spite of your pain wow like you don't have to have had trauma to be a good songwriter yeah. A good artist, you're you're creating in spite of that, or yeah, despite yeah. that, right? Yeah, no, that's that's a cool way of saying that. Like, um, because it doesn't define you. No, I mean it doesn't. I mean, and we all have it. We, we Pete, I'm telling you, you take a look around. I'm saying, like, <laughs> especially people who drink and use alcoholically, they definitely high <laughs> high percentage of folks have trauma. But I want to say, and all of our traumas look different. 100%. We all experience it. It could be something our parents didn't even mean to do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. They think they're loving you in the way that you want to need to be loved. But or they, like, they love you the only way they know how. The like, only way there was an example for them. And it's, Thank you. Yes. And I just listen, that's where a lot of acceptance and forgiveness comes in. 100%. And... I'm getting, getting there. It was weird. Like long before I got sober, I accepted my dad for who he was and realized like, I don't think he signed up to be a dad. <laughs> I was going to just say that. Yeah. I, but like, and he was young. There's no playbook for it. No. And I, 
I don't, I mean, my grandfather was wonderful to me, but I don't know how wonderful he was to his son. And I don't, I never think, you never think to ask that stuff until it's too late. Like, can I go back and sit down and have this conversation with my grandfather? Can I sit down and have this conversation with my dad? Because you want to know those truths. Yeah. Because it's generational trauma too. Yeah. So saying that, like, if you still have your grandparents, go talk to them. And if you still got your parents, talk to them because there's a whole well of knowledge there that you think you might know someone. Or like an adult and don't expect them to embrace what you're asking. <laughs> but yeah. but if I could have like a woman to man conversation with my father mm. about some things that would give me clarity, because like you said, there now there's a lot of assumptions that are made. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of triggers. There's times where we might hear something from a parent or a sibling, and it's a trigger for something that happened in your past. One last thing. How did you get your name? I got my name because my parents thought they were going to have twins. My dad wanted two crazy-ass boys. He was going to name one Thunder and one Storm. But it said it turned out I was a fat baby, so they guess God put them both in one. And my full name is Thunderstorm Kahekili Marani Ortiz. It's like 49 characters. but um. But yeah, man, it's you even go back to the thing where you're talking about like sometimes it's even giving your your parents like a lot of kids don't know this, like giving your parents the uh how do you say this? Like seeing like the ability to be able to not have to be perfect. Because a lot of people don't realize a parent wants to give this perfect image to you to show you that I got you and I got everything together. And they don't tell you that, you know what, I'm figuring things out just like you're figuring things out. And I might be like 20 years, 30 years older than you, but like, there's no playbook for this. No. And I had an idea of what I thought my life was going to look like and looks really different. And sometimes when you give them the acceptance to be like, hey, like, let's just talk on the real, like, what's going on and how do we, how to deal with this? What have you learned in your experience of life? Like, it's a beautiful thing. Like, the conversations that I have with my mom now versus the conversations that I had growing up, like, they're different. And it's, I, mean, I was talking with her today and, and also have patience because sometimes your parents, like, they take a little long to get to the place in conversations to get to the place where you might get to. But it's like taking the time to listen and hear the stories and hear the lessons that are, that are woven through the stories. Oh, my God. Everything my grandmother ever said, she was always right. Had I listened then, my life might have been a little easier. Yeah. I'm grateful for my life the way it is. Do not get me wrong. However. Yeah. I think it would have been a little easier, a little easier. <laughs> well, I always say this. Life is, people always say life is short. I say life is long and there are seasons. Um, and so that's sort of when you were talking about what you used to do and all these things as well. And it's like, those are beautiful seasons. And in those seasons, you are the person that you needed to be. Um, and in the season that you're now, you have the knowledge from that, the good, bad, and the ugly that are now influencing where you are now. And then now I think because of what you've experienced, like you're able to do this podcast and you're able to be an influence to someone like Emily. You're able to be an influence to someone like me. You're able to be influenced to the person that you were talking about that was like, you know, I'm a year sober now because of what your story and what you've told. Like, and I'm like, and that's the same thing when I'm like, you know, losing my dad at 13. I mean, it wrecked me. But then now I'm like, you know, and I'm being a Christian, I'm always like, you know, I don't think God creates the bad things that happen in my life, but he can redeem it for something great if I allow him to. And I wouldn't be half the person that I am if I haven't didn't have that experience. Yeah. Um, and like 
I don't think I'll be able to reach to people that I'm able to reach. Like I've been on mission trips to Brazil, Mexico, the Philippines. Like I've done a lot of really cool outreaches um, because of the short stint of my family being homeless growing up. Like I've done a lot to be able to help people in those situations and understanding that, like, and recognizing like, yo, I experienced these things. It wasn't great to experience. I wasn't loving it. and I wasn't thinking that this was going to be used some point in my life. But now because I've experienced that, I have a complete different outlook on life. Um, and it's just not allowing yourself to become a victim of those circumstances. and Or letting and it define you. Let it define you because it's like, there's so many people. I mean, I think about it when I meet people who say they can't sing. Not saying that everyone can sing, but I love to use that as a reference when they're like, I can't sing. And I'm like, when did you first start to believe that? They're like, well, I was in choir when I was like eight. Those limiting beliefs that we right? talked and about. And the choir director is like, you can't sing. You're not going to get the mic. And then, um, and then, you know, 20, 30 years later, that person's not in your life to tell you that anymore. You're saying that to yourself. And I think that's that example of the sense of like, we got to stop speaking negativity over ourselves and start being more positive and see around you some people who see the, the best in you, but aren't afraid to tell you the truth at the same time. Well, I want to tell you, it was a pleasure having you here. I wish we would have recorded from the second you walked in the door here. You said so many so great things going. where I was like, be quiet. We got to talk about this. It's an honor to have gotten to know you. I'm glad you're here in Nashville. I'm glad that you're part of our our music community, my personal community. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm so happy that I got to ask you some questions that were milling about my head. And if I don't ask you about your dad playing with Van Halen? Yeah, he did. You got to tell Philip this story. So we'll end on that note. From what I, I don't remember all the details, but yeah, I believe he played with them in, at some, at an iconic venue. And it was, yeah, and the stories that he would tell me about, just the experiences he had. I mean, it's, oh my God. you never know what you're, I mean, and that's the thing. I wish, I wish I did ask him more questions, like when I was a kid and, um, I'm thankful for my mom being the historian that she is. Oh, she remembers that's everything. Awesome. So right. And you can always still talk to your dad. Oh yeah. He hears you. Oh, thanks for saying that. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This was fun. Yeah. I and I always gonna do a podcast this week. <laughs> and I always end it by saying, take care of one another. Amen to that. Thunderstorm, you have one of the most special voices I've ever been around. It's like raspy and angelic at the same time. Like um, an angel that smokes. <laughs> it's both, though. It really is. Blackbird singing in a dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly And all your life You're moments to be free To the light of the cold, dark night. Black <laughs> singing in a dead of night.
Thunderstorm Artiste. I'm from Haleiwa, Hawaii. Thunderstorm! 